Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special on The Host, the new Korean monster movie. Uh, I'm here in the studio with Julia Turner, Slate's culture editor. Hi, Julia. Hi, Dana. Now, don't forget the Slate spoiler special is a feature where we give away the secrets of current movies. So if you want to see The Host and you haven't seen it yet, uh, you might want to wait and listen to this podcast after you have seen the movie, especially because The Host is particularly full of spoilable twists and plot turns. So, uh, Julia, uh, we didn't see the host together, but we saw it within days of each other. Can you give me your initial reaction to the movie? I loved it. It was just this completely woolly movie. Like, it's in no way compact or concise or tight. It's just really loose and rambly and contains all of these wonderful little gems in it. Um, Different scenes and shots and jokes and gags and frights. Yeah, we were talking before about how, I mean, the wooliness also has to do with the movie's complete undecidability as to what genre it is. You start off thinking that you're watching, you know, a typical horror monster movie that's going to have a somewhat predictable pacing, as you were saying, where a certain amount of peaceful downtime is followed by a surprise appearance of the monster. And, for example, the monster is usually slowly unveiled in a movie like this. You know, first you see a victim, and then you sort of see a corner of his shadow or something, and then you see just his claw or whatever, and then there's sort of a climactic scene where you finally see the whole monster. This movie subverts every one of those expectations and, and every genre expectation by just sort of to me, it seemed like dipping into whatever well of genre it felt like it needed to at that at that moment. Right. And it, it shows you the beast right off the bat, which is just great. Um, so the premise of the movie, which we should probably lay out, is that an evil American doctor has forced his Korean underling to dump a bunch of formaldehyde down the drain. And it leaches into the Han River, which divides Seoul. And four or five years later, this gross monster arises from the river and starts eating and chomping on all of the bystanders. And we see this family that sort of lives by the riverside, and they seem to be snack vendors, I guess. They're, they sort of... Yeah, they operate like a little snack hut kind of thing so, on the river. Yeah, sort of for all the like pleasure seekers that are sitting on the banks of the Han. Um, and it's kind of this motley crew, and in the opening sequence where you see the monster right away, the family's beautiful, angelic young daughter... Angelic, but also she has a nice spark of mischief to her. Kind of a tomboy. Um, yeah, gets gets snatched by the monster. So that's the setup for the movie, and you think she's a goner. Right, and then as we were saying earlier, the really surprising thing about the twist that the movie takes after that, at least to me, was that we stay with this family. I mean, I had just sort of assumed, again, according to monster movie convention, that they were sort of the first in the lineup of monster fodder. You know, like the woman who gets killed at the beginning of Jaws, and you you know see her death and identify with her, but you know that she's essentially just setting up the story that there's this monster on the loose. Instead, the family of Hyung Seo, is that her name? Uh The girl who gets snatched away under the water by the monster become the protagonists of the movie as they, in this sort of vigilante justice way, (laughs) start to take off against the monster with whatever sad tools they have. And as they're being pursued by this state apparatus that sort of turns more and more into this... um, it becomes a paranoid political thriller in a way as the state starts to sort of crack down and generate a lot of lies about the monster in order to uh, to keep people in line. Right. So what can we spoil? What are some of the things that, that happened in this movie that completely surprised you? I mean, one thing that was very surprising to me was who died and who lived. The grandfather figure dies rather early on in the film, and he's not... He sort of has like a noble family dignity aspect early on in the movie, which none of the other people in the family do. He's sort of the only member of the family who isn't profoundly screwed up in some way and who has some sense of of how to hold the family together. So when they lose him, in fact, the family does start to sort of disintegrate and spiral off into different directions. And the different siblings who are all pursuing the monster together start to take off on their own bent after that. Right. 
It's also um, very surprising to me that the fate of the girl, who you initially see being spirited away by the monster under the water, turns out to be this double fake-out. You know, she pops up later. She isn't actually dead, and she manages to make a cell phone call from the monster's lair to her family, thus provoking this chase um, of them trying to chase down the monster. But then, as long as we're spoiling, it's very surprising at the end that after surviving the entire movie, the girl finally does die in this strange sort of reverse birth scene where she's pulled out of the maw of the monster finally in the climactic battle in this, you know, very, to me, it was very much of a kind of birth metaphor. And she's dead. She's stillborn at that point. And um, it's a horrible, devastating end to the movie in some ways. Yeah, and you don't see it coming because you do sort of come to trust that there's like a basic benevolence to the director's outlook, I think, that he's there to more to entertain you than to make you sad. You sort of feel that way throughout the movie, and then at the end you finally see this plucky girl who you've come to really adore, I think, die. And, and I, the plucky I, girl never dies in a movie like this, right? Or in any slasher movie or any kind of horror film. Plucky. It's always the, the plucky, resourceful, smart one who manages to find a way to live. And you see this young girl find all these really clever ways to try to get out of the monster's den and save this little boy who ends up getting dumped into the lair along with her, and yet she doesn't make it. It's quite a shocking subversion of your expectation for the end of the I movie. was so surprised by it that I kept expecting her to revive Me through too. the whole Me coda too. of the film. And, I, and they actually set it up earlier in the movie, but you know, I kept expecting her to come to life there. I ex- kept expecting her to walk out of the yellow mist of Agent Yellow. Yeah, it's really hard to believe that she's gone. Well, I mean, as long as we're speaking of the mad tonal shifts and the the mourning for the daughter, can you talk about the scene where they initially first think that the daughter's dead? There's a strange moment. I would call it sort of the beginning of the second act of the movie where after she's just been spirited away by the monster and the whole family has watched, they end up at this kind of mourning center. It seems like it's some kind of gymnasium that's been converted for the victim's families Mm -hmm. to gather in, and they're sort of being debriefed or waiting for information there. And there's this really extreme shift in emotional tone in that scene that makes you realize, whoa, we're not in Kansas anymore. This is an unusual kind of horror movie. Yeah, I mean, they, they sort of have this victim's wall with, you know, photos of the of killed and abducted lined up, you know, that recall sort of the victim's walls after 9-11. I mean, it's a very moving, serious montage of these photographs of the dead. And then this ramshackle family that's been reunited by the girl's quote-unquote death, this is her first death, which wasn't really a death, um, gathered her picture and wail and writhe and cry in this way that at first seems very heart-wrenching and moving, but then becomes almost like slapstick, like they're... They're, they're falling over each other on the ground, They're right? fake crying, they're shoving each other, they're... Sort of fighting for space in front of the daughter's yeah, picture and shoving yeah. each other away. I mean, they're practically kind of going, woo-hoo-hoo, and like banging their fists on the floor, you know? And so at first you think, oh gosh, this is so sad, and then you think, oh God, what is, what is happening in the scene? Like, why are these people being so disrespectful about their own grief? And then eventually it just becomes hilarious. Like the the camera pulls up and you see the four of them kind of writhing in a row on the floor as though they're in a sardine can and you you can't help but laugh. And I sort of felt like that was the moment where I I finally jumped on board the director's kind of crazy sort of Frankenstein of a movie where at one moment you're in one movie and the next moment you feel like you're in a completely different film. Yeah, because at the same time, it's not as if we give up on those characters at that moment and decide that they're contemptible people who don't really feel their grief by any means. Yeah, yeah. And you were saying that the um, that sort of that scene 
shows the way in which that they haven't yet united as a family, right? Well, yeah, it occurred to me later in the context of, you know, the, the rest of the story and the, how the movie becomes a movie about family. You know, a lot of critics have actually compared it to a sort of weird, grisly Asian Little Miss Sunshine in that it's about, you know, this dysfunctional family that learns to pull together for a common project and, and for the sake of a little girl, as in right. Little Miss Sunshine. But when you look at the writhing on the floor, like sardine scene that you just described, in the context of that plot of coming together, you kind of realize that that scene is actually saying something really important to the narrative, which is that they don't even know how to mourn together. You know, they're all sad and they're all grieving, but they're not helping each other in any way. All right. Well, this isn't quite spoiler territory, but I think one of the things that makes this movie the most worthwhile is that there seems to be so much going on under the surface besides just the question of will they catch the monster and who will the monster kill next? And the movie just seems to be alive and sparkling with these, you know, different metaphors that come and go or kind of references to current political affairs. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? For example, what's been called the anti-Americanism of this movie? Yeah, I mean, in some ways the movie is anti-American. In some ways it's just sort of anti-authoritarian. You know, it seemed to have as much it's much negative to say about the South Korean government as about the American government. But, you know, there is a sense oh, the arrogant Americans are dumping their formaldehyde, you know, wherever they want and they're responsible for it. Um, and then there's also the question of the virus, which is actually a little bit confusing and not particularly closely drawn in the movie. But after the monsters first discovered the government, it seems like the American government in concert with the South Korean government announces that, in fact, it's been discovered that the monster is not just a monster, but also the host of a horrible virus that will give you gross pustules and kill you quickly. And this becomes an excuse for quarantining all the people who've seen the monster originally. This is part of why the family has trouble escaping to rescue the daughter. And for a while, they're afraid that they're about to break out in, you know, horrible deathly skin rashes. But then eventually they don't, and they realize that they're fine. And later in the movie, they learn that the virus was, in fact, never existed and was concocted by the American government. Um, yeah, there's a very odd moment when this cross-eyed, uh, <laughs> extremely malevolent-seeming American doctor says in English to a fellow American, you know, explains this whole long conspiracy theory about the virus and how it's been concocted to keep the population under control. And all that Gangdu, the main hero of the movie, who's a pretty dim-witted guy, yeah. can understand of the English they're saying is the words, no virus. Right. But he gets it and starts right. to say, no virus, no virus. And almost immediately afterwards, he's lobotomized. <laughs> but, uh, but that doesn't stop him from... Uh, right. The lobotomy is almost like a reverse lobotomy and switches in from a narcoleptic dimwit to a... Yeah, it's uh, one of the better jokes of the movie, in fact, that the guy who's so dim-witted actually seems to get it together only after <laughs> he has a prefrontal lobotomy. <laughs> Um, but, okay, well, did you see any other um, metaphors, things in the movie that made it richer for you than, than just a horror movie? Well, I mean, there's, you know, there's the references to SARS with all of the population of Seoul going around with face masks on. And then there's, the you know, the reference to Agent Orange at the end where the government is dropping Agent Yellow all over the city in order to decontaminate everybody from this virus, which didn't exist. But I, I found that those devices were not so much to make a political point as to kind of further the movie plot-wise and also visually. I mean, it just became an excuse to have these great ominous billowing clouds, clouds of, of yellow, yellow in the climactic final scene and, and sort of the sense that maybe they're all doomed, which you briefly think maybe they're all just going to die along with the monster right there on the banks of the river. Yeah, I mean, insofar as the movie has any political stance. I mean, it's it's not a cohesive one. It's not as if it's some sort of a an allegory for some specific history or, or situation right. in the current world. It's more that it's just a politically smart movie. I mean, in many, many ways, it reminded me of George Romero movies, you know, like the yeah. Night of the Living Dead movies or a great movie he made called The Crazies that's kind of about a 
brain virus that starts spreading throughout the <laughs> land, and, and mainly about the hysteria and the sort of you know media panic that that provokes. Um, but you know, George Romero, in the same way, doesn't really have any coherent critique of anything. He just thinks everything sucks the way it is. Right. And I thought that there was a similar kind of jaundiced eye, you know, on Korea and on you know environmentalism and on I don't know everything that the, the director Bong Joon Ho casts his eye upon. You know, right. he just seems to have something smart to say about it. It's very energizing just to see something so unexpected and so willing to encompass all kinds of genres and ideas and characters and scenes. Okay. Well, Julia, um, thanks a lot for coming in and joining me on this Slate spoiler special. My pleasure. And for Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.